Our Bible reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. And it was easier for me to read it on my phone than out of my Bible. (laughs) So it's Mary's visit to Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. Um, It's good to be with you this morning. When I got the uh, email from Peter with the suggested topic for the day, it took me back quite a number of years to when I was an associate pastor and the senior pastor always seemed to hand me the difficult passages of scripture. (laughs) I don't know whether I was just, you know, well I think there was some truth to it. I'm pretty sure that Peter might have gone on holidays just to escape this one. (laughs) Why? Well, if we're going to have a Christmas sermon, I mean, let's face it, there's there's all sorts of good stuff. There's, there's angels giving messages. There's, there's shepherds singing. There's wise men visiting. There's all sorts of Disneyification of Christmas. You can, you can spruce it up. And, and I, I got a catalogue, a catalogue, catalog, a monthly magazine from one of the major Safeway, uh, no, it used to be called Safeway, Woolworths, that's right, and it told me that Christmas on the December issue of the magazine is all about fun, food and family. Well, that's, that's good news, isn't it? And, of course, if you buy that line, it's no wonder that people feel devastated when something tragic happens at Christmas time. People die and have accidents. Crime takes place. At Christmas, it's all about fun, food and family. And yet with this scripture reading, we come face to face with another aspect about Christmas, Mary. She's almost the forgotten person of Christmas, particularly for we good Protestants. We don't know what to do with her. So basically we don't say much at all. So now I've got this passage of scripture and I'm stuck with it. And I'm here and you're stuck with me. So I apologise that we may not be having much fun, not particularly about family, and I suspect that a cup of tea afterwards doesn't quite classify as a Christmas feast for the food. So it's going to be thin pickings today, is it not? (laughs) 
Here's a good question to ask about Mary. Who are you? <clears throat> I was 24, Judy, 21. We'd just come back from our honeymoon. We when I was inducted as the pastor of Waverley Baptist Church, Bondi Junction in Sydney, and uh, it was our first Sunday. Judy was hardly known to the congregation. I'd been a youth pastor, although my kids believe I never was, and I'm making these stories up. I'd been a youth pastor there for two years. Judy sat down, and a little old lady came up to Judy and said, "'You're in my seat, dear.'" Mrs. McNabb. <laughs> Who are you, Mrs. McNabb? Well, she was kicking 80, very close. She was old, not so old in my perspective now as it was then, but she was old and she was fairly crabby, didn't smile much, and if she had something to say, she said it. Didn't speak a lot, mind you, but there was a little bit of acid in how she delivered whatever it was that she wanted to communicate. And as I started as a youth pastor, I was still a student at a college in Sydney, just starting there actually two years earlier, uh, I was down to, for meals at people's homes on a Sunday to get to know folk. There was no pastor, an interim pastor there, and it was thought that I could carry some of the general pastoral responsibilities and, and I could get around and meet people and so forth. And about four or five weeks in, it was Mrs McNabb and I thought, oh my heavens, even then I thought, no, this is not going to be a fun day. The house was dilapidated. I discovered later on it was her parents' home. She'd lived there most of her life. And... To say that the start of the meal was strained, I'm thinking, what do I say? This is New South Wales. He doesn't even barrack for Geelong. I, by the way, that family moving to Geelong, what a great idea. Fantastic. Anyway, I, I digress. And I was really scratching around for things that I could talk about. And, and some of the early... Lessons in pastoral care came back and you know, try and talk about the person. Oh, that's a good idea. So I started asking questions. I got two word answers. And I'd noticed on the mantelpiece the photo of a soldier. It was an old sepia photograph and it was fading. It was in a leather frame and it was cracked. And I asked... Mrs. McNabb, about the photo. She said very softly, that's my husband. And we got talking and the story came out. She was 20 years of age, her husband, 22. The family was not terribly approving of their only child going out with a man that they thought was inferior. And in early 1915, when he signed up for the army for the duration of hostilities, they wanted to get married, and she had to defy her parents in order to do it. Within three weeks of his induction, with only a couple of weeks of training, 
It was scheduled for a transport. Ironically, the convoy to the Middle East was escorted by Japanese battleships. If you know your history, you'll know that Japan was an ally during the First World War. And so they were married very quickly at a registry office. They had three nights together. He sailed off, and four weeks later, he was dead. She moved back in with her parents. She never married again. There was no family. She was alone. Mrs. McNabb, did you ever think of getting married again? No. He was my love. <laughs> and who else was I going to marry? I knew enough of that history to know that Australia's population was roughly 4 million. 64,000 young men had died. You do the math, that's equivalent to about 350,000, 400,000 today on percentage of population. Staggering, isn't it? She said there weren't exactly too many young men lined up anyway. No. We got talking further and she talked about her youth out in the country and the one thing that she remembered was running through a paddock next to the house before they shifted to Sydney and in the spring it was filled with daisies. She'd make a daisy chain and she said, I still feel like I'm 12 years old skipping through that paddock making daisy chains. Who are you? A crabby old lady. Or a real person with hopes and fears and a story when I even retell it now brings a bit of a sob to the heart. Of that generation we probably will not see again. Who is a person? It's been said that people are like onions, there's layers and layers and layers. Who are we? Who is Mary? Well, pardon me while I turn around, my eyesight's not good for that screen. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married, a man named Joseph a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And here is what the angel said. Well, that's next, Graham. Jewish wedding customs. Well, it's a bit difficult to go back in time because the customs varied from place to place, but we can pretty much drive this down for a, a shape of what a marriage looked like. There was no engagement period as such. Once the families had met together and the bride and the groom had agreed to the wedding, the groom may have instigated those discussions, the groom's father may have done so, or the bride's father for that matter. A couple may have known each other, probably did in a smaller village, 
They might have had some feelings for each other, they might not. But at some point, through family discussions, the decision was made that they would marry. And after the discussions, the bride would be called in, the prospective bride, and she would give her assent. Typically, even if she didn't want to, the business was done. The groom would give the bride a coin or a ring as a token of his intention, his promise, his fidelity, his commitment. And then the contract of marriage would be drawn up and at this point the couple would be considered a married couple. However, they would not live together. They would remain in their family's home. They would not be husband and wife and share a marriage bed. And typically there would be a 12-month wait. And in that 12-month period, the community would gather around and help the husband build a new home. You may think that being a builder would have been handy in Joseph's case, a carpenter. Well, of course, the homes were made out of stone or mud, but yes, being a carpenter still would have come in handy for the furniture. And the women would gather around the young bride and she would be instructed in the more intimate marriage uh, capabilities and functions and responsibilities and she would be trained explicitly to care for a home and it would be done with a lot of laughter and singing and the sharing of biblical stories of marriages in the past through the scriptures. And whilst all of this was taking place, the two, of course, would get to know each other a little better with the intentions of forming a marriage and building a future together. And at the appointed time, the groom's friends and family would process from his home that he just built to the bride's home. And the bride's friends and family would come out and meet them in the street and the larger procession would then proceed back to the newly built home. There'd be a brief ceremony and the husband and wife would share their first night together. <clears throat> On the seventh day, the husband and wife would surface and they would share a marriage feast with all of their family and friends so gathered. Before the passage that was read to us, there is this. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. If ever an angel appears to you and says you are highly favoured, the Lord is with you, I suggest that you hightail it out of there real quick. Because it's almost guaranteed not to be good news. <laughs> if you were a young girl at this point, you'd be rubbing your hands together, wouldn't you? Rubbing your eyes, of course, 
to make sure that you were seeing what you were seeing. Wow, I'm highly favoured. <laughs> the Lord is with me. Wow. Mary wondered about what this meant, as she might. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Oh dear, things are getting worse. <laughs> There's got to be a price for this one. Highly favoured. The Lord is with you. What's going on? You will be with child and give birth to a son and give him the name Jesus and he'll be great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Wow. That's a lot to take in, particularly about the throne of David, a king who will reign forever, this child. But Mary has another problem, a fairly major one. How will this be since I'm a virgin? That's a pretty good question. Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then there was the news that her cousin Elizabeth in her relatively old age, supposedly barren, also was having a child. And the angel simply said, with God, nothing is impossible. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Did you get that last sentence? You may think that that's not very important, a little detail, an exit. Then the angel left her. How old was Mary? 14, 15, 16, 17? How do you absorb that? How do you make sense of that? And the only thing that you've got to go with any of this is that an angel appeared to me and said, I'm going to bear a king. I'm pretty sure that Mary was already thinking, I don't even believe it, and I think I heard it, and I think I saw it. Who else is going to believe it? Like I said, if an angel appears to you and says you're highly favoured, get out, quick. Do a Moses. Lord, get anybody but not me. <laughs> How would you process that? This is not just a little detail. This is not like, hey, somebody's given you a lotto ticket and you've won first prize at the draw. That you can cope with. Unless, of course, you're a Baptist and you don't get lotto tickets. But <laughs> this one... This is not a prize. 
This is not something you go from house to house and say, wow, look what's happened. This is something that cuts you open and dissects you and makes you face to face with, if it's true, who's going to believe me? I am a married woman. Yes, I'm in the gap between the commitment in marriage and the actual fact of it. But I'm pregnant. And so this, of course, is the private crisis. And it was private. She was alone. And there was pathos in that sentence. The angel left. And there she is, sitting in the dirt, staggered, stunned, trying to come to grips with it. And if her husband was to condemn her, it's possible that she could even be stoned. This was not some trifling thing. There would be real doubts that she would survive much less that she would end up having a child who may or may not be a king. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then there is the next verse. At that time Mary got ready and hurried. <laughs> Do you see what's happening here? She was going to go and visit Elizabeth. This was the only thread that she had that she could follow to even begin to make sense of it. This was something concrete that the angel had said. There was no chemist shop, there were no pregnancy kits, there were no tests. She would have to live with it for months until something would convince her that there was a child. She couldn't talk to anybody. She couldn't talk to Joseph, her parents. They would throw her out. She hurried. I bet you she hurried. As fast as she could possibly go, she was off to visit her cousin. She stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. The angel had said that Elizabeth was about six months pregnant. She stayed for three months. It's a fair bet that she stayed until the child was born. I don't want to spend details of the passage of scripture itself. I want to sketch the human aspect to all of this. Because now she was returning home, all that happened between herself and Elizabeth, all that she saw and observed and heard reinforced the angel's message. It would have been the only solid thing, the only anchor in this storm that had broken over her, the only reference point was this babe, this cousin, the angel's message regarding her, 
Elizabeth's response. But now she was coming home. And what was a personal crisis was now a public one because after three months there was no hiding the fact of her pregnancy even if she could. And so whatever confirmation and conviction had formed in her in that holiday, that break away, that escape from reality, if you will, to get her head around another reality, and now she was back home again, and there was no escape possible. Joseph would have to know. Her parents would have to know. The community would know. <laughs> An angel come and talk to you? Yeah, yeah, it happens every day. I had one yesterday, actually. <laughs> he told you you were pregnant. <laughs> yeah, like that happens every week too. Come on, Mary. You might be young and foolish, but we're not. Can you come up with something better than that? Christmas story is that Joseph was a righteous man. Oh dear, that almost spells trouble at that point, doesn't it? But it's meant not in a purgative sense as being a hypocrite to use his righteousness as an excuse to inflict pain but to exercise grace. And he refused to condemn Mary. And we know the story about the angel coming to, to Joseph and telling him the story of the angel's visit the first time. And we know the rest of it as the Christmas story unfolded. But then there was hardship and tragedy. A donkey ride to Bethlehem. Hands up. Those women who have been pregnant who would enjoy a long donkey ride just before the baby was born. Didn't think too many hands would go up. I remember a couple of kilometres in a reasonably comfortable car and that was bad enough. Yeah, right. It's a real Disney story, isn't it? The stables have been cleaned out. The animals are sparkling. It's all romantic. A donkey ride. Oh, wow. Put that on your Christmas list. And you know, of course, if there's no room at the inn, how do you pick a no room at a motel these days? Well, of course, the sign's flashing, but the car park's full, right? It's a dead giveaway. If the inn doesn't have any room in it, guess how much room would be in the stable? Think about that for a minute. Now, you think car exhausts are bad enough, all that carbon dioxide. <laughs> well, at least when the car's parked, it's not doing anything. But a stable? Oh, I'm sure there was some clean straw put down. But folks, let's be honest, it wasn't Disneyland. 
It was filthy. It was the best they could do, but there was no family, no friends, nobody in a stable with all of the animals and all that the animals would produce. Good place for a king to be born, isn't it? Do you think God had a sense of humour about that? I don't suspect that Joseph and Mary would be laughing too much. And then the escape into Egypt. Herod was cranky. The wise men had said a king is born. He didn't want any rivals. So he set to and killed every child born under two years of age in the region. And the angel came to Joseph and Mary and said, go, escape. Sunday school teacher asked the class one Christmas, little kids, to draw what they wanted about the thing that fascinated them the most about Christmas. One little lad, about seven years of age, his dad was an airline pilot, and so the teacher wasn't surprised when his Christmas story had a massive passenger plane. It was vaguely Christmassy because there was a desert and a few palm trees and there was this funny figure hanging out of the cockpit and she said, what's this? Oh, that's the flight to Egypt. Well, who's that? Well, that's Pontius the pilot. (laughs) Now, you've got to give the kid credit for a bit of creative licence. But really? How many people go to Egypt from where they lived? Just about no one, unless they were professional travellers and merchants. How many McDonald's stops along the highway? Not a one. Now you know why the wise men turned up and gave them gold. And they would need every ounce of it for the time they spent in exile until it was safe to come home. The Christmas story has its hard bits, doesn't it? And woven through those hard bits is the goodness and the grace of God. Never hear the story of the three wise men and think, oh, isn't that wonderful? Remember the story of the three wise men and think, here is God at work providing. You may ask, well, if God could do something like that, why didn't he halt the slaughter? Why was it necessary for them to flee? You honestly believe that faith means that it's an insurance policy against life and evil as it stalks and affects us? Think again. God provides. I suffered a stroke some six years ago. I found myself in hospital. The stroke hadn't fully hit. I was in bed two o'clock in the morning and it did hit. I couldn't reach the butter. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. And I was absolutely terrified. There was no human contact at all. And suddenly Psalm 13 of all Psalms flashed into my mind 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Well, it seemed like ages lying there. The end of the psalm, very short. But I have known the goodness of God and I will sing his praises. The stroke didn't go away. The effects of it didn't leave me. The shortening of my time as a pastor happened and I live with the effects each day. Last night I was out mowing the lawn, took a step back. Next thing I'm on the ground, bumped my head on the concrete curb. So if this sermon makes no sense at all, there's a bit of a scatterbrain thing happening up there. It took me nearly five minutes. It was a quiet street. Nobody came to help. Nobody was around. It took me nearly five minutes to get up. I'm glad nobody was around. It looks a bit like a hippopotamus coming out of mud when I'm getting up. But there you go. Was God with me? Oh, yes. Were the circumstances of life altered? Not particularly. So who is this Mary? A faithful, serene, unmoved by all that she experienced? Her emotions under control? And never a moment of doubt or distress? Well, many have thought so. After all, she is the mother of God. <laughs> wow. That must mean that she's really special. And so the story evolved. That must mean she is pure. That must mean that the normal aspects of life bypassed her. That must mean that she is worthy of not only our honour, but our worship. Pope Pius IX on December the 8th, 1854, speaking ex cathedra, as in this is doctrine, not just a comment off the cuff. We declare that the most blessed Virgin Mary at her conception was preserved free from the stain of original sin, a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Such announcements used to be known as papal bulls. I agree. Absolute load of papal bulls. I'm sorry. I know these days we've got to be inclusive. But that's nonsense. There is not any scriptural justification for it, but that's how the cult of Mary in the medieval church grew. And if that's not bad enough, more recently, the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Mother of God couldn't die. God just swept her away. But notice the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary. Well, here's the twist in sexuality that many firmly believe the Bible teaches, which it doesn't, that sexual activity makes a person impure. 
Who were the brothers of Jesus? Well, they were Joseph's children from a previous marriage and he was an old bloke when he married Mary. Really? No justification for that anywhere in Scripture? Where did it come from? It came from people's minds in here that wanted to make Mary somebody special, pure, not touched by the world. And nothing that the world could inflict on her would touch her, not even death itself. Not only that, but she's also a co-redemptrix. Pope Benedict XV, we can rightly say that she herself, together with Christ, redeemed humankind. One cross shared by two persons, the Lord Jesus and his Blessed Mother, has both become one. Our Lady has suffered spiritually and physically with her divine Son. I know what it is to have a child near death. I know what it is to say, if only I could change places and mean it. And I'm sure that Mary would have felt exactly the same. But that is a human emotion. It's not a spiritual fact. Now, to his credit, the current Pope has come out twice in recent days and has said that that is not true. And so it only remains bubbling away under the surface as it has for centuries within the Roman Catholic Church and some other Orthodox churches. And so you get artwork like this. Jesus and, and Mary on the one cross. Jesus and Mary sharing the same heart, following the same purpose, with the same goal in mind. The cult is strong. And to its credit, the Roman Catholic Church stands against it, but nonetheless, that's the direction that things are going. Or, what's our reaction to all of this? John Calvin, when he was a young man, was a prisoner of the French. For some years, he was a galley slave on the oars of an ocean-going boat who was propelled by sail and by oar. He was pressed into service to carry a statue in procession of the Virgin Mary. There are two accounts of where this took place, on board ship or on the seashore on a, on a pier. But John Calvin threw the statue of the Virgin Mary in the water. And he made the comment when he asked what the heck was he doing, let our lady now save herself, she's light enough, let her learn to swim. And when I first heard this, I thought, no, somebody's made that up. I did the historical research, and yes, it's in his own diary. This happened. We're not told what happened to him as a consequence. But, you know, Protestants ever since have been doing the same thing, throwing Mary overboard. We're embarrassed about her. We don't talk about her. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote some century, ten centuries back, there are three miracles. The virgin birth is a mere trifle for God. That God should... <clears throat> pardon me. That God should become a man is a greater miracle. But most amazing of all is that Mary should have such faith as to believe that this mystery would be accomplished 
through her. Really? Faithful? Serene? Unmoved? Is that how Mary is? Or is she a sister in Christ to be honoured? Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed are you. All generations will call me blessed. This is a Baptist church. Should we really say stuff like that? Why not? It's biblical. I'm just quoting from the scriptures. She is to be honoured. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour for he has been mindful of my humble estate. She's one of us. She has a saviour. She wasn't born without sin. She didn't die without dying. (laughs) She was human, flesh and blood. And she rejoices in the grace of God as all the people of God do and should. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said, said Mary. And Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Blessed is she. Paul, writing to the Romans, speaking about being justified before God by faith, said, What do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Do you get the impact of that? Could Mary pass a theology exam? (laughs) Mary, answer a few questions on the incarnation. Incarnation. How could God take on human flesh? Mary, give us a dissertation on how Jesus is both God and man. Two natures. Huh? Huh? What? Well, how many words? You want me to write? Well, 500 would do. Really? I don't know any of that, Mary would have said. All I know is that I am the servant of God, his handmaiden, and whatever he said to me, I'll do, and I believe. Mary, you've passed the exam. (laughs) You don't have to understand theology to understand this point. That faith consists in believing God. And the act of believing what he says and trusting in it means that we stand before him forgiven and justified in his sight. Not anything that we do, but our response. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Can you imagine the scene when Mary has died and she presents herself to heaven and God says, why should I let you into my presence? Well, I'm the mother of God. (laughs) I, I bore your son. Hmm. No, sorry, 
not going to fly. Not by works. You would think that if it was by what you did, Mary would qualify just by what she did. She stands with us before God because of her faith. She believed God. Yes, she went through fear, shame, heartbreak, stress. Did she doubt and waver? I have no inside information here, but if she is fully human, if Jesus did the same thing (laughs) before his death, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could allow Mary to do the same thing, could we not? So what is the Christmas story all about? Fun, food and family? No. It's a real story of real people facing extraordinary circumstances and as real people coming through it, undergirded by faith and the goodness of God, who is faithful. And that means it's a story for you and you and you and me. It's not about angels and wise men and shepherds quaking. (laughs) It's not about dirty stables and donkey rides. It's about believing God and acting on it in spite of our human frailties. And it's about the goodness of grace of God wrapping his arms around Mary as he would any human being and on the basis of her faith and trust in God who spoke and she believed, hearing well done, our good and faithful servant. In a few moments we're going to sing Silent Night Holy Night. This was written by a young German priest in Austria. Actually, not German, although he spoke the German language, of course. Joseph Moore, only 22, just graduated from seminary in his first village church at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, 15, 18 years of constant warfare, devastation, hunger, trauma, Poverty. And in the first year of his time as a village priest, he carried the burden of the people who he cared for on his back and his health had broke at the end of it. He spent two years recuperating. But before his health finally broke, walking back home in the peace of a Christmas In the midst of the suffering and the angst and the burdens, he wrote, Silent night, holy night, all is quiet, all is calm. He wrote about the peace of God, not because he was living his own little Disney story, but because in the midst of life, he understood the goodness and the peace of God. Not only that, a volcanic eruption in faraway Indonesia, no, not Krakatoa, another volcano and a few years before, had exploded with such force 
that faraway Europe had lost its summers two years in a row. It snowed and crops had failed and hunger really did stalk the land and it seemed as if creation itself had turned on people. We talk about climate change. Oh yes, it did. And how? And that was the background of the story. After his health broke and his recuperation at a new parish, he enlisted the help of the organist of the church to write the tune. And then because the church building had flooded and the organ wasn't working, Joseph Moore took his guitar with his organist friend as singing a duet for the first time, Silent Night, Holy Night, was sung. Within 20 years it was being sung around the world. Extraordinary. But the nature of this song is not to dignify Christmas with a beauty that is not a reality. The background of this song is to remind us that in the midst of reality, there is a faithful God who is faithful to his promises and gives us peace, no matter what the shape of our life or the circumstances we find ourselves in. Let's pray before we sing. Lord God, thank you for your word. Write it on our hearts. Inscribe it on our minds. And Lord, may you bend our wills so that we may do and live as you would have us do and live, that we may glorify you, that we may celebrate your faithfulness and through all of the turns of life, even if they are the consequences of our own foolish and sinful decisions or simply caught up in the evil that walks amongst us, we may always remember that you are God. And evil and suffering and trauma and stress are not your last words. You will have your way, for you are sovereign, and we praise your holy name. Amen.